Hello and welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. I'm sitting here with my, my guest this afternoon, Miss Robin Zimmerman. Hello, Robin. Hi. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We've got a really, what I say is a very important topic and is a special place in my heart because I love talking about things that are real and we're going to have a real conversation today and I look forward to it. Robin is a peer support worker at the Alberta Health Services. So with that statement, can you give us a little bit, what is a peer support worker? What do you do? Yes, yes. So I work um, with Alberta Health Services um, with a clinical team um, based out of Sheldon Schumer and East Calgary Health Centre. I've worked with AHS in this role for three years. And at the heart of my role is connecting with our clients who are living with very complex mental health um, experiences and kind of embedded social issues related to mental health challenges. And my role is to engage our clients to um, sort of look at treatment beyond the clinical aspect. So an okay. engagement from a very strong recovery-oriented place. So a lot okay. of my time with clients is, you know, I guess inspiring or engaging self-reflection on their recovery in their life, um, sort of creating visions and and hopes for the future and what life means beyond living with schizophrenia, for, exec- for example, or schizoaffective okay. disorder. Okay. How many people would be involved, and I think you mentioned earlier, like how, how many people would you see in the course of like a period of time, maybe six months or a year? Um, so our program is around 160 clients, give or okay. take. It's fluctuating and dynamic. I carry a caseload of about 25 clients and see those people on a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly basis. Okay, so it's fairly regular. So you've got a yeah, fairly intimate... You become yes. you connect with these people, yes. which is kind of the point yes. of the. And is this a fairly the, the peer support idea or that concept? Is this a new? You said you've been doing it for three years. Is this a newer pro, uh, way of approaching uh, helping these individuals? For sure, I'd say it's definitely part of the sort of the 1990s, 2000s, the shift towards community support and um, very strong recovery focus. So, okay. um, you know, we can't really talk about treatment of mental health without talking about recovery and the all-encompassing aspects so focusing on you know that that recreation part and um and those sort of things but really it's about connection and belonging and an invitation to to sort of really live your best life participate in your life again yeah totally um how many people this is a team approach so you you, you're on a team how many so if i'm if i'm a one individual if i'm if i'm a client yeah how many different people would be there to support me on this journey um part of our program we have a very unique program because we're multidisciplinary so we have nurses and social work and occupational therapy and rec therapy and a gp and psychiatry and peer support so our clients are you know really um What's what's sort of I guess supported by? Well, it feels like it's a very holistic. You've, you've, very you've, holistic. you've got all the all, all aspects of it supported. For sure, for sure. That's interesting. And how would like just getting a little bit of the nuts and bolts? How does someone? Because it sounds like if I'm going through something like that, this is the type of program I would want to be in. So I'm getting also. How do how do people end up being clients of yours? How do, what's the um, process? Clients come to a sort of community treatment to our program mostly through referrals. Okay. Um, that happens from inpatient you know, psychiatric units or access mental health. But um, our clients stay with us from, you know, a shorter term time to 
like up to 10 years, depending on their needs. Oh, interesting. Okay. But, um, this is, yeah, it's not a set period of time. The period of time is what's relevant to that individual's Yeah, needs. for sure. Okay. And I was just going to add as well, like in terms of the evolution of peer support, it is still quite new in the world of mental health and treatment. Okay. So Canadian Mental Health Association has a very vibrant team of peer support and they're responsible for that kind of surge of training and, and opportunity. And that's where my training came out of. Okay was Canadian Mental Health Calgary, but um, in terms of clinical mental health, I was part of a pilot project that became permanent, so it's very cool to be on the sort of the brink of change and and um, movement. Well, it sounds, t- it's, so, it's so interesting because when you hear you describe it, it just makes sense, but it doesn't mean it's always been that way, clearly. Right, <laughs> right. To looking at the whole person and look at that individual and all the aspects of, of mental health. And you and I were talking a little bit off air on how mental health can be so challenging to the outside because it's intangible. You can't see it. it you know, you fall down and skin your knee. You can see that. It's very visible. Right. And you can identify it. You go and you get fixed. Where mental health, I think in our society, it's so easy to stigmatize because it's so, it's so easy to just not understand. Right, right. So that's, I mean, I'd say that's a huge part of the focus of peer support is having being a role model of recovery and having lived my own journey, a mental health um, path of recovery and, and being passionate about, I guess, bringing that awareness and, and really wholeheartedly the normalization of, of mental health experiences. And like I was saying to you before we went on the air that it's, we all have experiences, you know, that of like that are part of being human, but some of them are our mental health. Some of them we don't understand. Some right. of them we question. Um, so I really like to talk about my work in a way that, like, it could be any of us. Like we're all living with mental health. Yes. Any of us can be in need of the system. You know, I was reliant and in the system for. Um, over a decade and well, I know we shared and you and I had a conversation mm-hmm. beforehand where part of this is a journey for you that is ties into an evolution of your of your own personal experience so I understand and you were very honest and transparent that you read you had your own challenges with mental health or you, I don't even, I don't want to raise the challenges you had your own experiences with things early earlier in your life yes Do you want to yeah. share a little bit about that just to yeah I can yeah I'm usually if you to feel be very honest I'm usually quite hesitant you know we start talking about diagnoses because there's so much labeling and yes. stigmatization to 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 uh to disorders or to illnesses or diagnoses right like especially when we don't have a lot of um education or um our understanding or seeing that people individually are so much more than the mental health experiences they go through on a day-to-day or you know annual basis like whatever arises it's it's just like the coming and going like anything else right so when I talk about my mental health it's Sometimes it feels very far away from me when I reflect back to being 19 years old and my first contact with uh, the system on an, like as, as an uh, inpatient um, recipient, I guess, or okay. consumer of mental health service. But um, yeah, I, I guess in a nutshell, I, my sister and I and my dad, we lost my mom when I was quite young to, to metastasize cancer. And shortly after that time, like I had started university, I, I had the intention to do a, um, um, an education degree to teach high school English, had all these plans and visions and the mental health, um, I guess, 
everything just sort of shut down and everything imploded and exploded at the same time. And um, I found out because of, again, the behaviors or the symptoms that were arising beyond my control that, you know, I was unwell and I was unfit to be um, pursuing what I wanted to at the time. And I I had to, um, I think even at that time, involuntarily and sadly and frustratingly had to, to, you know, come into the hospital and meet a psychiatrist. And I was always, you know, very high functioning and highly motivated and all of those things. So I guess long story short, I I came into hospital, I was 19. Um, I was told that I had bipolar one disorder, um, the fluctuation of energy and moods related to like biochemical changes in the brain. um, And that spectrum from you know, despondent depression and suicidality to, um, to mania and euphoria and, um, and on both ends of the spectrum, like really hard to function and to find my footing. So that was like most of my twenties. I was able to shockingly, I, I say shockingly because I was persistent and I had great, um, unbelievable support from extended family and, um, my nucle- nuclear family, but I was able to finish an English degree and then go on to University of Alberta and do an education degree. I shortly after taught high school for five years, and this all happened with intermittent episodes. And Interest- yeah, interesting. Was- so you you come you come to this very from a very honest place of yeah. like, when you say I know what you mean, you literally can say that with credibility. Yeah. You know, and and I think what's so interesting when you work on a clinical team, like in a mental health, um, like with our program with ACT is um, in my role as a peer support worker, when I'm having a one-on-one visit with a client who maybe wants to talk about their experiences with psychosis or, you know, want to talk about those feelings of shame and embarrassment and sadness and the heaviness and regret and all the associated feelings and it's so complex and so deeply personal I can very gently um, and carefully try and navigate that conversation with them and say you know like you said I know I know what that's like and it is okay and it's okay to feel that way and permissibility is so powerful because we don't permit ourselves to have these experiences yeah somehow we're supposed to have this experience is okay but this one I should turn off right but unfortunately that's we don't that's why they're called emotions (laughs) you don't necessarily get to turn them on and turn them off right so over a period of you know through through your 20s did you find at the time that the system you said you had a lot of extenuating support and a lot of you know nuclear the the nuclear family Mm -hmm. said uh, a lot of people in your corner did the medical system was it there for you at the time? Because clearly there wasn't a there was there programs like the one you're in now at the time, or were you exposed to something like that? Um, I feel like it's a good question. I feel like yeah, for sure at the time where I was last um, relying on the inpatient services in our mental health system, there was the program I work for now. But I think just given sort of my needs and um, I guess criteria. I I didn't necessarily need the sort of supports that the program I work for okay. has. Um, I was I'm very lucky. I've had the same psychiatrist for almost 15 years. I okay. guess uh, he was the doctor who diagnosed me, and I he's been able to follow me or I follow him in the community, 
And, and that's been very meaningful for me to have that continuity of care. And I know how hard it is for some people to access a psychiatrist from the outside in and um, trying to find the good docs that are taking new patients. And um, that can be challenging, but... Um, Access to care is a real problem across the board in, mm-hmm. in Canada. So mm-hmm. I'm, with mental health, it's just equally so. And I think, you know, it's, it's hard because when I talk about our mental health system... You know, I talk about it as a former consumer of the inpatient services. I talk about it as a consumer, as an outpatient recipient through my own relationship with my own doctor. But I also talk about it as a provider. So, you know, I have my own personal critical feelings or reflections about what could be better or could have been better, especially in the inpatient setting. Um, But... I think that's why we're always trying to 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 learn like as professionals and to right. to be more reflective on our practice and and more um more compassionate and and role models, you know, like being those leaders who are super recovery focused and cuz those people stand out. Like they stand out in my team as coworkers, they stand out as inpatient nurses, they stand out as inpatient and outpatient psychiatrists and um, taking that leadership role and having integrity, you know, and not be swallowed up by the negativity or that compassion fatigue or... Compassion fatigue, that's a really interesting term. Yeah. That's a reality. So when you you meet these people that you're describing and as you're smiling and and kind of glowing as you describe it... are these people, this is a weird question, are they made or are they born? Because some people, I've met people, they're just so warm, they're just so caring, right. it comes out. Right. And then I've met other people that are incredibly well-educated, but they're kind of cold. And I'm not thinking about anyone in particular, I'm just yeah. throwing out broad categories. Yeah. But we've all been through the medical system and had maybe both versions. Mm-hmm. And one feels, you know, we talked offline, I've been reading some case studies lately as, you know, some people advocating for the soft side of medicine and showing that a patient that was received more empathy gets better faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was not talking about mental health that was just physical physical injuries which i thought was very interesting and so in your journey when you run into it like do you feel that there's more of those like are we moving more in that direction are we getting more like that i i love that question and and i think i mean i'm smiling because i i relate to that directly as as someone working in the system as a provider like working with our program with act a sort of community treatment and as a as a a former consumer, especially in the inpatient side of things. And I think we are moving in that direction. And I think, again, the power of the positivity and the genuineness and the sensitivity and all of these qualities that make us empathetic healthcare providers um, and human beings shines brighter than the negativity. Um, that's that's an op- that's that's it's good to hear that. So yeah. that's an optimistic. Yeah. That yeah. means the future is going to be better than the I past. I hope so. And I think yes. like, you know, well, do you're we- you're doing it. You're making your. You know, I'm giving giving you props. Like you're in there being part of that change for sure. And the relationship that I make I make with clients is is I'm still part of the system, and I'm on my team, on my clinical team with my coworkers. But I do feel in my heart like our clients relate and talk to me a little bit differently. Okay, because I'm not. You know, I'm not trained in, like, I understand risk assessment, for instance, and can, and, you know, do those sort of things and report um, concerns around, you know, presentations of cl- all the clinical stuff, right? Right. Um, 
but I think clients just know I'm there to listen and well arguably kudos to the the, the people who put together the program because they they, they created a like it's a mixed team approach yeah it is <laughs> you know it's like yeah. if you think of the pit crew not everyone's trying to change the same tire <laughs> everyone is going well I'm going to focus on this area because that's my expertise but the whole people come together to as a team and I really like that approach we're not trying to think that there's one answer or one, right. one ingredient to that individual that it's a very complex journey mm-hmm. and that they're bringing together a mixed group of people with different perspectives and backgrounds because it's almost admitting openly that, well, this is a complex problem we're trying to solve. Right. Humans are, are complex. <laughs> we have a lot of angles. And yes, the clinical, and like you said, the very regimented side, potentially it has its place, but don't forget the other side. And yeah, I think totally. maybe in medical, it's easy to think of the medical system as maybe forgetting the other side in the past. Right. Not to be critical. It's easy to kick point holes and kick, kick, kick the kick it around a little bit. But we're not here today to be critical about it. We're here to raise the awareness about it. <laughs> right. And I think that's what's so unique about peer support in clinical teams is it's, it is a holistic approach and it is a team approach like you identified. And um, it's a way also for, what's the word? I guess the heartbeat of mental health to start to change a little bit. Okay. Because we're recognizing we, you know, for me, for instance, we have someone with lived experience on our clinical team. You know, we have someone who has this capacity to to speak the clinical language and understand it and um, acknowledge it from the clinical perspective as like my team, as my coworkers, our clinicians, we also have someone who can be that colloquial recovery-focused lens, right? And start to just talk about life living with and beyond mental health. You know, and I think that's, we look at the Like what you said, with and beyond, it's the journey. Right, right. And we look at, you know, the values of peer support and the core competencies of a peer support worker and, you know, it's a lot of the same things that we value as as uh, clinicians, but, you know, and clinicians hold hope for our clients. We all hold hope for our clients, but coming from it, from saying, you know, I've been there, I understand, it's okay, do you want to talk about this? Mm-hmm. What does the future look like for you? How do you feel today? What have you been thinking about? Is there something you want to do differently this week? Is there something we can do differently today together? Like these very invitational questions that start to, I feel like, respect and remind clients of their agency and are empowering questions. You know? I like an invitation questions. I like that because mm. you're always mm. inviting the next or and, and almost just meeting them where they're at that day in that moment. Totally. Versus driving an agenda of always get better or move forward. Like, totally. No, this is part of a journey. You said something earlier that just caught my attention that I wanted to touch on. You said you've been working with the same, um, uh, j- the same gentleman for 15 years. Yeah, my I, doctor. Yes, your doctor. Right. Yes, right. absolutely. You've been working with your doctor for 15 yeah. years. I really appreciate the, like the message to me that that sends is that this is also an ongoing process. It isn't necessarily a one and done. I'm like, oh, when I get to this day, then I'm good and it's done. That there's nothing wrong. That there's nothing wrong, or there's no stigma around having that person in your life to stay on track and keep things moving in the right direction. I, 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 what we talked about earlier about you know the goal of this podcast was also like let's try to change the stigma a little bit. Right. Having someone in your corner and you know even how it's become more trendy in the corporate world. If you're a leader and you don't have a coach, that's kind of weird now. Right. Where ten years ago, it'd be like, why do you have a coach? 
coach, what's wrong with you? You don't know what you're doing. Right. It's like, you know, that's just in the corporate world that I live in. But I think it's still different versions of saying, Hey, it's okay to have someone to help you stay on track, whatever that is for you. So I don't know. What's your, what are your thoughts around that in terms of, do you, do you see that change where people are more okay with that long-term support? Well, I think what you're talking, you're, I think what you're touching on a little bit, Tyler, is the, um, trajectory of recovery or how does recovering from acute mental health experiences happen? Like how yes. does, how does the reduction of symptoms happen as well? And at the same time, like those start to diminish and at the same time, the development or growth of personal aspiration and possibility growth. So it's interesting. So that's a very direct correlation. The way you, the way you yeah. showed it, you're visually showing that and as what are this those goes things, down, this yes. goes up. And what are those things that make that happen? So, you know, I can identify the pillars in my life that have been huge sources of refuge. And for sure, my psychiatrist has been someone who's believed in me. I think that's why he's chosen to support me regardless of where I am or the fluctuations of my mental health. He's been there. But, you know, I can, you know, for me, like, to make it more con- concrete, which I think we need in terms of understanding recovery and how mental health looks, we need to be able to identify what are those things that have helped us get better, right? Including and and all those things are what build our resiliency and and uh, foster our inner sense of hope and. Um, and that's so powerful because mm-hmm. sometimes it's things as when you when you're not dealing with when you're not wrestling with that we take those things for granted sometimes like you said resiliency and the be I talk a good friend of mine Carlene Donnie I mentioned earlier runs uh, cups and she's shared so much with me I've learned so much with like they talk about their journey and how they build that resiliency into like for. You know, she would say, Tyler, for you and I, something goes wrong, we can bounce back. But someone who doesn't have those tools and something goes wrong because that's life, all of a sudden they don't bounce back and next thing you know, they're on the street. It just gave me a very different perspective of like, you know, you've got that, you've got that operating system that helps you move forward when you've got those things. Take that away. Life gets very different very for quickly. Sure. I learned that she, that resonated with me a lot. I think about that often. But and I, I take th- it for granted because I don't know what it is not to have it. For sure. And I think people forget that. I think... Um, like I, th- I think you know. To be very honest with you about my journey and what happened after being sick so frequently over almost ten years is all of my resiliency eroded, and I had very little resiliency and I had very little hope, and I had even lost a lot of my basic skills that I used to have, you know, my emotional regulation, my mindfulness skills, the way to be more effective interpersonally, the. Um, stress, you know, distress, like distress tolerance, like those sort of things had all kind of fallen away because I was living um, in so many ways on the day-to-day, what's that saying when you're like living, everything was kind of hit or miss and everything was very um, tumultuous and groundless. Well, there was nothing to regulate. There was nothing to regulate. And so... And life is by itself, left alone, is pretty erratic. Right. And I think this happens... From getting with, cut off in traffic to it's too cold today or right. to I slept in and missed my alarm and now my right. whole life is thrown off. Right. And I think when we start understanding, have compassion and we go back to that idea of, of stigmatization, like I, my, I really hope people will consider that we all have great the great capacity for regaining those things or relearning those things or um, coming back to those things. But 
you know, can you imagine, like I'm thinking of some of our clients with our program, you know, who haven't talked to someone for almost five days until they talk to me after like a long weekend, let's say, you know, and what does it mean to be living alone without a lot of social contact for going on 10 years? And how does that affect how does that affect you, right? So, and when it comes back to compassion and understanding, it was, and, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's a level of ignorance because you just don't know what that's like. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, you, just you saying that, and I'm trying to put my mind into, like, I always joke, you can imagine just about anything if you've, if you've got that skill. But I'm like, wow, I'm like, what would that be like? What are the, what are the implications right. of not talking to another person for five days? Right. Sometimes I think it would be nice because I talk to too many people. But then I'm like, well, wait a second. No, I need a break. But then all of a sudden, I'll feel that need to reach out and reconnect because that's just part of it. Right. Not having something as simple as that, which we can easily take for granted. Totally. Uh, it's, it's so hard to, you know, because empathy, talking about empathy and how do, we, how do we facilitate that when it's something we just don't know a lot about. Right. And I think, you know, that's why I'm so happy you invited me here today because... Thank you. My um, pleasure. And I, to be honest with you, I don't necessarily feel like I'm as articulate as I, as I hope to be because it's such a broad story and context and experience that I live on the day-to-day for my own personal wellness, let alone the clients that I support in a peer support capacity. But um, I just... I, I, in my heart, I wish people would would soften in trying to understand mental health and soften as as people providing service and people who are observing others, you know, let's say downtown and right. seeing people that are visibly unwell, you know, and they're obviously in crisis and they need help and access to services gets even more complicated and challenging with substance use and yes. homelessness and all these other social issues and poverty and... Um, I feel sometimes very lucky and blessed. I can feel the goosebumps actually on my <laughs> arms thinking about it that I had I had a path where I had all that support, which is in so many ways I think the first and foremost important part of treatment and and overcome you know mental health challenges. I had the family support um, but i th- I just I, I wish people would be more understanding. I wish. Do you think that because th- th- there's a lot more awareness being put put towards mental health? You see whether it's in television campaign or whether you see it more talked about. It, do you feel even in your own from your own experience into now working in the system yourself from from being involved and in having the system there to help you to the um, aspect of now being part of the being part of solving the problem? It, do you think it's changing in our society? Like, are we on the right path? Yeah, I definitely. I want to be optimistic, uh, yeah, but I want, also very, want to be honest. I want to be yeah, honest. Yeah, and, and Tyler, I agree with you. I'm I'm optimistic. Um, I'm a realist as well. Like mm. I see. I appreciate that. <laughs> I you know I think we've come a long way. The fact that we have peer support workers in mental health, especially in clinical settings, is a massive leap and a promising um, a a promising development. I again, I really believe it comes down to leadership and. Um, you know, our strong managers, our strong supervisors, our strong recovery-oriented staff leading others and role modeling, using recovery-oriented language. That's a huge one right now in in clinical settings and mental health. So give me an example. What would be, give me some examples. Recovery-oriented language. Talking about the person, you know, not the behavior. Ah, yes. Okay. You know, especially when there's, there's a lot of different behaviors that manifest because of mental health reasons. So, um, seeing beyond that um 
I think language that purposefully empowers people or honors that people's own empowerment that you know um those sort of things okay and you know being very professional and holding a high standard for each other um you you know how we talk about people it's just like our own personal lives and how we talk about people we know in our circles you know how do we talk about each other and what's respectful and appropriate and what's adding versus what's detracting totally exactly like um, sometimes I think, and like not just mm-hmm. to cut us all some slack here, when we're uncomfortable, we use humor. We're uncomfortable. It's a dark for side. Sure. It's for sure. It's that whole you know shadow behavior of like, oh, something I, makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to make a joke about it, or I'm going to I'm going to minimize it that that way, and it, it can be damaging. It can be hurtful. Even though it might be, I'm going to say, quote unquote, innocent. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt <laughs> that it wasn't intentionally being that way. But I know it's so easy to, oh, that makes me uncomfortable, so I'm going to make a joke about it. And I don't versus feel like, actually going looking at it for what it is right. and just being okay with it. And I don't think that's. I mean, it's not just mental health, right? Like yeah, I said, don't, I, don't I taught, that's a broader topic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in human services in general, or working with people, it's easy for us to make comments that potentially are inappropriate or. Um, not client-centered or not person-centered and those sort of things. So I saw it as a teacher in the way teachers can talk about students or talk about each other. Or It's a really good point know. to take it out of that environment and just talk about the bit of maybe the human condition. Right. <laughs> how, right. We, how we interrelate with each other. But as something, I think so much as something, the more you learn about something, the harder it is to minimize it. The more right. you become aware. It's like why I think travel is so important. Because when you travel, like, oh, there's different perspectives of how to look at the world, not just my own. Imagine that right. from the people that I grew up with, and I, you know, this that whole this is the one way because that's the way I see it. So you just tilt your head a little bit, and wow, the world looks very different all of a sudden. Right. And something like mental health, I think that we talked about this offline, off air. It's been so stigmatized, and we sometimes what we know about mental health we've learned from Hollywood, which good or bad, it's not always accurate to what the experience truly is. Right. Until right. you meet someone, a real individual, and you're like, oh. Oh, this is real. This right. is, I know so-and-so and you dealt with this thing. I, I don't know. I'm over, maybe oversimplifying. I'm just trying to because think of you, my own journey. But no, it's, it's very bang on because you don't know who's living. We all have mental health. You know, we look at the spectrum or the, the ways that we can feel deregulated. As, like you identified, we wake up too late to go to work or the traffic is overwhelming or we forgot our lunch or, you know, these sort of things. Yes. Can, all the mini traumas that totally, we experience in the totally. course of the day. And, and, we don't always necessarily talk about those things and they, and they're, it's just a spectrum. You know, we're all, we all deal with human strife, right? We're going to lose the people we love. We're, we're going to get sick. Like these are the noble truths, right? Like we know that. So, yes. Um, yes. And it, it, it's just where you're at when those things show up in your life. Right. It makes a and, huge difference right. to what can and happen. And like, you know, I had, it's so interesting because, you know, not all of us who have had to be told we have a diagnosis or a label or have to take medication, not all of us ask how that happens, and some of us do, and and I think that's even still so ambiguous, like what is the, the cause for schizophrenia or bipolar, and we talk about genetics, and we talk about environmental factors, and, and but yet that's still so vague, I find, like even in my understanding, I, I get... Um, it's not always the most sufficient answer for myself, but I've come to accept that it is what it is. And I, and I really believe that like 
my diagnosis going through it was so terrible and so many times, but gave me so much perspective and so much strength, you know, like to be in a place where I'm totally okay and privileged in a humbled way to sit down with other people um, who are navigating their own mental health and being able to walk beside them and say, you are going to be okay and you've got to hold on and let's talk about how we can do this, right? Well, I, someone asked me this years ago. I said, Tyler, as a leader, what's your number one role? And I'm like, oh, this feels like a trick question. I don't know. And he goes, it's simple, to instill hope in the people around you. And it always stuck with me. And you, know, you think of leadership as this complex thing because what you're talking about is leadership in giving that person hope that, you know what, we'll get through today. It's, it's okay. And it's yeah. so simple to say. When you say it out loud, it seems so obvious, kind of smirk a bit. You go, oh, hope, of course. But when you're in that state where everything is overwhelming, a little bit of hope goes a long way. It's true. It's so, true. So, so for yourself and on your own personal yeah. journey, I know I've, I've been a mentor and I like to, I love to give back and support people, but I always find, I feel like I'm learning more from being a mentor than almost they're learning sometimes for your own journey. Does working with people and helping people, is this, is this also been a big part of it for you in terms of, as you work through this process, which, which, sure. is, which is, we call life. Let's just call it life. Well, and I think I, I absolutely. And we look at, um, a peer support model, like let's look at Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous historically having sponsors and having That's community right. meetings. Like peer support's been going on for a very long time before we have called it peer support. And yeah, sometimes it, it, it used to be just called family and friends. <laughs> right, <laughs> it used to be right, called your, you know, the whole right, it takes a it takes right. a village to raise a child kind of concept. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So in terms of my own recovery and wellness, um, there's almost an accountability to our clients, to my peers, you know, that um, it helps me kind of keep my life in perspective and for me to know what to hold on to and what to let go of and how can I return kind of day after day and be the best that I can be for our clients and, and for my peers. So it's a... Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a beautiful privilege. It's a beautiful privilege. I like the way you say it and the smile on your face when you're saying <laughs> it. I think you just uh, you said something I want to touch on a little bit to maybe because this is something we can all relate to. You don't what to hold on to and and what to, and what to let go of. Like just that concept in itself to me is so powerful because so often it's easy to hold on to things that don't no longer serve us. So for yourself, having gone, having to have gone through this and having to be very deliberate on rebuilding some of the skills, the fundamental skills you talked about, just that idea of what to hold on to and what to let go of. Do you have a Do you have a process around that for you that you make that very tangible? I'm really picking on you there because yeah, you no, said that and that was so powerful. It's. I think it's it's obvious it's obviously for all of us a practice on the day to day, but. Um, a huge part of my wellness is the practice of yoga and meditation as a form of or a vehicle for for what you said. Okay. How do I let it go on the mat and through the movement and through the sitting, the meditation? Um, and how do I know what I need to keep thinking about to return to in a future discussion, maybe with a colleague or with a client? Um, and maybe sometimes it isn't as black and white and right. it just it sits there for a while but in terms of my own like we talk about self-care as a huge part of Pierce we talk about self-care as a huge part of all of our lives yes um, I agree that's for all of us to think it's about it's for all yes. of us it's for like, all of us we talk about health and wellness and mm -hmm. I think the mental part of that sometimes gets pushed aside I think it's important but calling out mental health is we all it's all of our own responsibilities to address our own mental health self-care 
For sure. And that doesn't mean just going to the gym. I love them. Like mindfulness is what I took out of what you said because I do yoga as well. And it's very mindful. Like it's sometimes you want to run off that mat, but you, have, you stay there. For sure. <laughs> and, you work, sure. and you work through it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, How long have you been doing yoga? I started doing yoga in 2007. I was doing my education degree in Edmonton. And, you know, I know this is kind of a heavy word, but my yoga guru I met okay. in Edmonton. Guru is an interesting word these days. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, but he, he really was... The, the, ignited something and a spark that's never died really and then I did my yoga teacher training in 2018 oh nice yoga in Calgary yeah oh nice yeah so that's you know that community um and I teach um classes at yoga Santosha twice a month and and uh that that spirit that feeling that uh is an offering and practice uh, surrender it to mean it's so many things all at once and I really believe that's at the heart I think of my life and my wellness more than anything because if everything fell away tomorrow and I couldn't do peer support for a while or I had to go back to hospital and I try not to catastrophize and I've learned to overcome those catastrophizing feelings around my mental health we are so good at telling Telling ourselves crazy, telling yeah. us stories that are that are like they're hallucinations. Yeah. They are, but yeah. man, we're so good. They're so elaborate. Oh, yeah. They have all the details. Yeah, and it and it's and it can often be a negative story. Yes, exactly. Catastrophize. I've not heard that term. I'm gonna. That's catastrophe. Yes, and oh, I do it. I'm a great. I can tell myself these elaborate stories, and I'm like Tyler. What are you doing? You're right. just driving yourself into this state. Right. Of, it's not beneficial. It's not beneficial. You should let go of that. <laughs> totally. Totally. But when you go on the mat, but the mat's always there. Mm. The mats, you are always, I left, I left a yoga class the other month and I said, you're always welcome on your mat. Yes. You know, and I, and I, and I reflected on that for myself and the way that yoga and meditation feels different every time because we're always different. Right. Um, but I think that kind of links to another important theme when we look at mental health and how do we move on and that is acceptance because our mindfulness practices helps us with acceptance and surrender, but it took me a long time to accept that my life would be different, that I'd have to accept the losses I had and the relationships because of my mental health experiences and my episodes. I had to accept that it just was really bad for quite a long time. And I couldn't necessarily have that acceptance of that time until, it, you know, the sun shone again, really. Right. You know? is, in that case, just playing with words a little bit, mm-hmm. I, I, love, I, I appreciate the word acceptance. But is it also forgiveness in that case? Oh, absolutely. Like, like literally for, forgiving absolutely. yourself. <laughs> and the shame. I had a conversation with one of our clients, one of my peers around forgiveness um, about towards family. Because... Mm. You know, when you look that's at a tricky, someone, that's a tricky one for a lot of us. Yes, yes. <laughs> Family's a hot button. Yes. Good, good and good and maybe not good. <laughs> right. And um, we were talking about the way um, addiction or mental health um, experiences impact family negatively, and therefore creates rifts in the relationships and disintegration, etc. Mm-hmm. And so, I talked about forgiveness and I think even in my own life is something I'm I'm still working on. I think there's layers to that process. 
I, I, I think it's the, the practice of forgiveness because yes. you always have to practice it. <laughs> and sometimes I think I'm good at it and all of a sudden I'm not good at it for some reason. Because right. <laughs> the context changed, like you said, it's an ever-moving target if you that's oversimplifying but yeah we're, I'm different every day so the concept of how I encounter it or what it is it's interesting you think you're good at it till all of a sudden something shows up you're like oh, I'm just not ready to right. forgive right. that one then you have to ask yourself what 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 benefit is not doing it and I don't I don't always know the answer right <laughs> and I think that these you know what we're talking about this come up for me in my life living with and overcoming sometimes I even say surviving is sort of my new focus around mental illness, especially okay. having a bipolar one diagnosis, I'll say I've like survived bipolar one. Like I really believe the worst is over. And, um, and I think we forget the people who are surviving mental health and living with mental health, that all these aspects are part of their daily reality, right? The, the, the inner stigmatization, the shame, the fear, the isolation, the abandonment, the aloneness, the desperation, the addiction, um, like all of these things is, is very real for for so many people. And, and it seems to be even worse for the people I know through my job um, that don't have support, family support, right. that, don't, they don't, they that don't, don't have family. Like they don't have people that have accepted them regardless of... And when that's your view, when you're looking out at the world and that's the filter you're putting on everything... And you don't have someone to kind of break that pattern for you that reminds you that they care about you or, you know, even to just have a conversation with you. We can all get, like, I know myself, you get caught on that thinking track and everything starts to get put under the same filter. And if there's no one there to give you a different perspective or even to interrupt that pattern, that's tough. You can really, you can really dig into those feelings and like own them almost excessively. But someone comes in and breaks that pattern, and the next thing you catch yourself not thinking about that. <laughs> like it's just interesting to not have that in your life. I think for all of us, that that it's a slippery slope sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Versus, you know, I think like you said, mental health is something we all deal with. It's just at what degree and what what do we have in our lives to help keep us all, you know, on the right track? What right. on the right track being what's on the right track for us? That's very subjective comment. But And part of and part of having that awareness is having an openness to others in general, right? Like when we open our heart and try and soften our mind about what we see, you know. Open our heart and soften our mind. That's a nice comment because you always hear the open the heart, but I'd like the the soften the mind part. Yeah. Because we all come in with our stories. Right. And our beliefs from past experiences. Right. So for yourself, I'm yeah. curious, I mean, I, this is maybe a weird question to ask, but I've met so many people that have survived an illness, a physical illness. Yeah. I recently had a friend who survived cancer and uh, you heard the word survive. That's what triggered it for me. And uh, I had a gentleman on earlier this week and we talked about his life and he was a very severe car accident. And he said, honestly, when people ask me if I could go back, would I not be in the car accident? And I say, absolutely not. I would be because it Mm. caused so many positives in my life and I've taken it. And he talked about his whole life philosophy, but he tied it back. He was uh, hit during the middle of the day driving by two people street racing. So it was a terrible experience in the hospital, like broken bones. It was a, it was a really bad situation and it wasn't just an accident. It was perpetuated by someone else. So there was Mm. negativity and anger and, you know, punishment and all those things. And what he still said, he goes, I'm still glad it happened because, you know, this many years later, it made me the person I am in your own situation and what you've gone through. Clearly that was a life defining experience. This is like, did you take more out of it? Like, are you a different, are you a better person, quote unquote, better, different now because if you've gone through it, that you've survived, use the word survive. I'm skating around this question because I'm feeling weird asking it. 
do you feel are 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 you a better person now who you are because you went through and survived that experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I beat around the bush on that question yeah. for way yeah. too long. I was scared. I was almost yeah. I was hesitant to ask it. So yeah. Like, is this appropriate? But you seem like you've obviously gone. That's what gives you the ability to now support these people in the way that you do because you survived it. Mm-hmm. I would have never used that term. Somehow I would have thought that was negative. I love that you said that. Because mm-hmm. it's, I think, I think what's so unique, and I want to articulate this. I want to explain this because what I love about my recovery journey and the trajectory is that I, there were so many pockets of darkness where so many things happened, you know, you know, issues with the justice system, issues with suicide attempts, issues with losing people close to me to suicide, living, you know, like just, you know, scrambling adventures of, you know, a lot of great atrocities and, and, and difficult things and and having lived through that and then being in a place where I am now where I'm I feel very peaceful like sometimes I feel like I could die tomorrow just let's say by natural causes and I would be okay I would be at peace that's a powerful thing to say yeah yeah and um and I and I do believe that like I said to you before, it's it's a it's a blessing and it's a privilege to be in a place where I'm so strong in my recovery, in my life, in my perspective, and my focus, um, or my vision, or my view of the world that I can that I I can kind of just be like in an abiding place, like I'm kind of abiding. Okay, in, interesting. So when you say, what do you mean? Explain. Give me. Explain abiding a little bit. I could go, yeah, I get it. But I'm like, no, tell me a little bit more. I'm curious. Abiding in like, uh, abiding is like a, a still, there's a stillness to every day. Okay. There's a acceptance to what comes in in the everyday. And there's a, a sense of taking refuge sort of in this spaciousness or this um, practice that happens, for instance, in meditation or in yoga. I know, I'm definitely hearing the yoga talking. Yeah. I've been in lots of yoga classes over the years yeah. and, and the teachers love to prophesize and share their experiences yeah. and yeah. so much of that being present and letting it pass and letting the thought go and just even the art of meditation and how challenging that could be. I have a group of executives that I, that I, that I meet with once a month and all CEOs and owners and, and that's often the topic is like, I've been meditating. Guys, How do you do it? I try. I can't do it. I can't be present. But I'm hearing it talk like 10 years ago, they didn't talk about it in a group like that. Now I would say like three quarters of the guys and gals in the room it's mainly guys just by chance in this environment they're all having these same conversations of trying to be that way in their own lives to be better leaders better fathers better right. friends better right. everything but it just seeing it being talked about and listening to you talk about it in the way of it's been such a part of your recovery process well and i think when i i'm trying to find figure out the year but there was somewhere in my 20s where it was actually after i think one of the first or second major manic episodes where I returned, like I had to come back home. And I remember saying to my sister and my dad, like something is very different and I need to come to understand what's going on for myself. And at that time I was exploring Buddhism. Okay. And I was, 
um, shortly after started joining a Buddhist center in Calgary for a number of years and was part of that and traveled to Brazil and went to Buddhist festivals and found a lot of my rebounding out of episodes maybe was minimized or easier sometimes really interesting. Be- because of this this perspective that I had started to adhere to and understand. And something like Buddhism, was that a sense of purpose for you or it was like you were looking for a different way to engage with the world and Buddhism provides a different set of filters because it's a philosophy. Yes. I I read a little bit of Buddhism when I was younger and so I just, I'm smiling, relating. I'm like, oh, interesting. And it gave me a different like, oh, so there's, it was that moment where I'm like, oh, you mean there's other ways to look at the world? And that was one of the ones versus traditional, you know, Western religions. I'm like, oh, Buddhism, this is an interesting way that I've never, it was new. I'd never been exposed to anything like that before. I was like 25, 26 probably. Right. Because, you know, as a framework to start answering some of the questions around my suffering, really at the heart, you know, Buddhism really looks at suffering and the causes and the ways that we move through or accept um, our suffering. Accept or don't accept. Right. Right. So it was, it was a huge, and that kind of, that kind of evolved over time, like started through this Buddhist center in Calgary. It was a Tibetan Buddhist group. And then, um, I met my partner at that, at that studio, at that center. And we eventually drifted from that form of practice and started looking at Zen Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, the, the the heart of it, the practice is really the same, but really emphasizing meditation and sitting and quiet and, uh, um, yeah, like the sense of, the sense of abiding, the sense of just trying to be at peace with things, I guess. No, I, oh, I understand. Thanks for exploring. I'm going to push you a little bit on that one. It's like, tell me more. Because these are the types of things that we can all benefit from. Like what we're talking about now in my mind, it's not about, oh, these are ways to deal with if you have mental illness. This is just ways to navigate life right. in a more effective way. And being mindful and sometimes, you know, having the power to change what you can, but also having the beliefs of letting what you can change just go by. It's okay. Right. <laughs> and like the whole let go or hold, or hold on to. How often do you meditate? I'd say almost every day, but... Sometimes it's it happens through a stillness or a posture while I'm doing yoga, and sometimes it's it's um, like a stopping. You know, it's okay. it's sort of like especially when I teach yoga classes, when we start the class usually in a seated meditation or a seated posture, I remind people or encourage people to try and access access that space between our thoughts, which is like our our pervading quietness that that exists beyond within everything in buddhism they would call that like emptiness right Mm -hmm. and so for me that's a huge thing i try and access every day is that spaciousness so if so in some ways that's a the form of how my meditation looks or even if i can't sit and, and physically bring myself to a posture to do it if i can close my eyes you know, sitting in the car waiting for somebody for 10 minutes and I Absolutely. can tr- try and tap into that. But I think that's a really, and I think, I think that's a powerful perspective on meditation. Meditation is a mindset and, and, a, and a way of, 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 of processing or, or, a, or a way to approach your own thoughts. It doesn't always mean sitting on a mat with es, uh, incense burning in the background. I think right. it's like a lot of people that haven't been exposed to it have this image of it. Again, probably from Hollywood, again, <laughs> probably from, but if you look into it, it is, it is a way of, you can be, you can meditate anywhere and at any time. And if even if it's a few moments, it's that stillness and that like quieting of the mind or 
what, whatever your process is, it doesn't have to be this elaborate thing. Right. Which I, is, I, yeah. Which is like the practice off the mat, right? How do yes. we bring yoga into our daily life? How do we bring meditation into our interactions and our conversations? And, and like you were talking about what you've learned about conversations and, and space and conversation and quiet and pauses. And even in my, my, my peer client relationships through peer support, um, Let's not be afraid to be in stillness together. Let's not be afraid to wait for the next the next thought to happen more organically or forcing conversation. You know, it's sometimes it's it's, it's like it's just surfing the it's surfing surfing the mind. Um, this is a very pragmatic or a very practical question. If someone was listening and they're like, you know, I've tried meditation, it's challenging, or I haven't been able to do it, or I didn't do it right, which I think is also a challenging one for people who try to do things correctly, um, how would you how would you encourage someone to approach it or to like start to pursue it if they're if they're curious? It's a great question, and it's something I do for myself as well. When I sit, if you're doing more formal. I, sitting, I would say just find a comfortable position to sit without any music, I think it's really important. And just to to come to the breath, don't change the quality of the breath, you know, um, just follow, you know, the inhales and the exhales. And the mind is always going to be busy, like thoughts will come up, but don't run away and get off the mat or off the carpet or off the mattress because you're uncomfortable by your thoughts. That's part yeah. of our acceptance, right? Is, yes is breathing through them, letting our breath transcend the busyness in our mind. And I think that can be the beginning of longer. And having a busy mind isn't, mm -hmm. you're not doing it wrong. No. I heard that I did it wrong. I'm like, no, 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 that's not yeah. how it goes. If we have a monkey mind, it's okay. It's going to jump from branch to branch. Just observe the monkey. Don't criticize the monkey. <laughs> totally, totally. Or like that, you know, conveyor belt analogy, like the thought comes in, the thought goes out. It's like the airplanes in the sky, right? They come and then they go in the clouds. And, and they the... just keep passing and that's, right. and, that's, and that's okay. I think it's really, we talked about acceptance and about acceptance of others. It's hard to do when we don't accept our own thoughts. It's like, very it, true. It, it all starts at home, if and, you will. And, and addressing what we're afraid of, right? And that goes mm. back to that's, stigmatization, that's right? Sort of, that's scary for people. Yeah. I mean, of course it is because what yeah. we're afraid of. But we want to avoid it. And we feel our, you know, not to get into a social commentary on the world of distractions that we live in. But, you know, when you're doing that, I also advise leave your phone and Instagram and Facebook in the other room, perhaps. Right. <laughs> Don't set it beside you. We also, our, our world conspires to constrict us from actually being with our own thoughts. For sure. For I, sure. I believe that thoroughly. I catch myself, I'm like, I am mindlessly looking at my phone. Put it down. Right. It's okay. And we all do that, You right? can just like, relax for a couple mm -hmm. minutes and be in stillness, but it's so easy. And I think, well, it's designed to trigger us. I think it's well orchestrated to, to give us that little drip of serotonin or dopamine. <laughs> totally. Another good tip I have just thinking about meditation is setting a timer. Okay. So even if you're just, you want to just sit, as I call it, for five minutes, you know, set it on your smartwatch or on your, if you can do it somewhere where you're not, you know, tempted to start going and looking yes. at your phone put again. Put your phone but, on airplane mode and then put right, the timer on. Right, that's what I, that's right, what I do. <laughs> right. But that helps too, because then you know there's an end point. You're not sitting there like, oh, I'm tired of, you know, because it's... Yes. And your brain starts getting, right. starts telling you, start telling new stories. How long do I have to sit here? Am I doing it right? Mm. Oh, maybe there's something in the kitchen. Maybe that TV show's on. Oh, maybe I forgot that. I got to go. <laughs> right. And so I think, interesting. And I just one last thing, sorry, Tyler, because I'm I'm thinking about this. Oh, don't apologize. From a, from a yoga perspective, if you've ever done yoga and you've done shavasana, and the idea is to sort of sink the body, the physical body starts to sink into the earth, and the earth supports us, and we can 
have a very intentional relaxation, right? A mindful relaxation for five or 10 minutes, whatever. I feel like seated meditation is the same. So getting yourself as comfortable as you can so that you're not, you know, your upper body is not sore, your back's not sore. And you can just really, again, come back to the breath and the physical body and the sensation of sinking into the earth and just um, feel that letting go in that way. I think that's, again, that can be very foreign. When I've done yoga for years, so I'm very familiar. The first few times being an athlete, I went to yoga class. I'm like, oh, I don't know about this, you know, fluffy business. But then as I started pursuing, you know, Buddhism and reading other things, it all kind of round together. So I do encourage people, like, go try a yoga class. I think it's much more, becoming more and more just part of our Western culture, where I know even 10, 15 years ago, it was very foreign. <laughs> it was still looked at as like, right, well, that's, yes. that's, that's over here. And yes. I like to, I'm happy to see it a little bit more mainstream. And yes. try different instructors too. Not all instructors yes. are created equal <laughs> yeah for sure for sure and different studios have different philosophies as for well. sure and i and i think whether you know some people like i obviously talk a lot about yoga because it works for me and Absolutely. i feel it's people find their physical outlet you know even if it doesn't have to be what we look as a, a gym membership or a commitment to Absolutely. a program Absolutely but not. you know our for instance when i go out with our clients with my peers it's we're always walking talking right walking me I think physical activity also does a lot from a mental yes. health perspective because yeah. it keeps the body functioning I had a friend who was dealing with some challenges and he took up archery because for him it was very meditative it was very slow it was right. quiet it was focused and he became a different person he had a much more he was much because in that sport in that sport or activity you have to be very present if you're distracted and looking around it's not it's not going to work out the way you want he be, I noticed over about six months his personality shifted I was like what are you doing he's like I started doing archery like two three times a week That's I love amazing, it and he just yeah. focused on it because it caused it forced breathing it did a lot of things but it wasn't about breathing it was like well you need to breathe effectively or else this won't work so it was always about this this target which was very much his personality to your point, you can find it in a lot of different places. Totally. Take totally. up knitting, do something. But right. I do, th- I, I'm a big believer in the, the, the tie between physical and mental of the physical sort of doing something. I think it's very powerful. Absolutely. It certainly is, keeps me on the right track for sure. Absolutely. A few days of nothing physical and my, I'm not, I just get antsy and it's, yes. it's not working. <laughs> yes. yes. Get ants in my pants. As a kid, my mom would say, outside, go outside. Yes. yes. She, she was right. So when it comes to you know, always want, thank you again so much for being so candid with your story. That's part of what I love about this show is I don't want fluffy stuff. I want to talk about real and hearing your real experience and you feeling comfortable enough to share that. So thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, first, any advice for somebody listening and, and it doesn't have to be something as, uh, it could be something as severe as I think I, I, I have something that's really like, this is not good or to someone who's just dealing with like little challenges every day and just finding it hard to cope. Any advice or any like from accessing care just to, you know, obviously we talked about yoga, but anything you would share from your own personal journey professionally, as well as going through it on what people can do to maybe start to address some of these things that they're feeling. Mm, that's a good question. That's a big, that's a big question. Yes. Right, right at the end. I thought I'd hit you with the big one. I feel like in my heart of talking about like recovery, mental health, even addiction is divorce yourself from the shame. Mm. Permissibility. Mm. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. And I think that if we I think if we can do that, then we can start moving through it. You know, like Robert Frost once said, the best way out is through, right? Yes. And uh, 
I like the word divorce. Like that's yeah. a powerful word. Yeah. You know, you didn't say accept it. You didn't say excuse it. You, you said divorce yourself from it. Like the, I, because I, I think words are very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Right. And the word divorce, that like we're done. It's over. You're, we're not going to see each other anymore. It's, it's finished. Mm-hmm. And that's what I probably see the most in my job. I think even you know, yeah, as a peer support worker in in our team with our clients and the conversations around shame and and just the sadness of loss. And I. And I think that if the people going through living with and overcoming mental health stuff start to let go of their shame, maybe that might help with stigmatization. Interesting. Well, I I find it in my own experiences, people's ability to forgive is surprising. I've been in situations where I've, you know, maybe not made the best choices. And, you know, when I gave myself the forgiveness, say, okay, yeah, you screwed up. Go to the go to the people that were affected and and ask for their forgiveness. It's never not worked out. I know I don't want to oversimplify mm. it, but mm. if you can't forgive yourself, no one else is probably going to. Mm. But the, I don't know. I've always been surprised how readily willing people are to go. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm still upset about it, but let's move forward together. Sure. And that's again my own personal experience. I know that's different for everybody, but sometimes you also give yourself a chance, but give the people around you a chance as well. They might surprise you. For sure, for sure. And I think in terms of like our community and how do we start to make bigger shifts or, you know, create positive rifts into the, the way we look at things, the way we treat people. I, I feel a lot of it has to do with how easy it is to sort of other people who are not like yourself or you've never been through addiction or you've never had to deal with those, those people, those people people over there. It's not those people. No. And and just to, to really anchor it, Tyler, like I work at a Sheldon Schumer at the safe consumption site where, as we know, there's so much controversy and different yes, there is, feelings yeah. about it. And I don't know, for me, I, when I, you know, I'll run into people who have been consumers of the, of the safe injection site or they're coming into Sheldon Schumer and I just, I just, I mean, my heart breaks a lot, to be honest. In my in my job, I feel very sad to see the suffering that exists with mental health and with addiction. And But I try and do my best to just look people in their eye and acknowledge them and, like, even say hi when I walk by or, you know, can I buy you a coffee? You know, there's a good earth out of Sheldon Schumer, yes, like someone's yeah. hanging out there. Can I get you a coffee? Like, because to be honest with you, like, we didn't go into details of my dark days and, and that's fine. But there were times when I was really unwell and I probably looked like that. And other people probably thought what, you know, had their own judgments of me. Right. Right. And I would, I would have wished more than anything that someone would acknowledge me. So it's a humanistic thing. It's not even so much a mental health or addiction thing. It's about being humanist and, it sounds so simple when you say it. Yeah. But if the world had a little more of that, and maybe, hey, and if people are listening to this podcast and they have the experience, because unfortunately, when we walk down the street in downtown Calgary, we're going to have that experience. Mm-hmm. It's going to be there. Like, mm-hmm. this is the world we live in. It's all around us all the time. But when it's in us and them, it's easy to push the problem away mentally and physically. Like, oh, that's not. But it, letting, those are humans. That's somebody's son, daughter, mother, father. Totally. Like, it, that's, 
it's 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 challenging because it's easy to just put your head down and, and 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 ignore it but ignoring it is is adding to the stigma of it and i feel if i was to add to the other part of your question of my thoughts for people who are in crisis or really struggling yes. a very quiet internal struggle and you know in my family in our circle we've known people who've you know been in the executive field <clears throat> of the workplace and taken their own lives and suicide is it's a kind of a whole other aspect and maybe different podcast, but yes, potentially. But um, that's a big topic, no question. I just, I just feel like there's, there's someone who who cares and wants to hear what you have to say, and whether that's reaching out to peer support, let's say through CMHA or through your community, it doesn't even have to be a trained peer support worker. Like you said, your family and your friends, someone who yes can listen. The distress center is a great resource when you want an anonymous conversation and maybe you aren't comfortable reaching out to your circle, distress center is great. And, uh, we are fortunate in Canada we are. North, because there are resources, but you're right. There's no need to suffer alone. People do care. I had a friend, maybe I think it's three years ago, four, four years ago now, this might be the fifth year I'm losing, uh, who committed suicide. And at the funeral, I ran into like we it was she was the center of attention she was the center of so many friend groups she was this like vibrant and I talked to my wife he goes like I haven't talked to her for a year he goes I thought you were talking to her he goes I thought you were t-. it was this weird moment where we all thought someone else like oh well she's kind of drifted away I'm not sure well maybe those other and when we realized we we all talked she had just isolated herself from everyone on purpose, but yet we all, nobody, everyone thought the other person was talking to them. It was mm-hmm. really interesting. And of course you go through that weird, like, well, could I have done more? Could I have done something different? And it was a really interesting experience. I still don't think I've processed it fully because mm-hmm. it's still, there's not, there's very rare. I don't think about it. And you just don't really, that sense of like, what happened and why weren't we there? And why didn't she reach out? And why didn't we know? And anyways, it's a really interesting experience having gone through that. And I, I don't think, I still haven't sorted out my thoughts around it, but you're right. It's, it's, it's a whole nother topic to bring up but if I look at it she systematically isolated herself from everyone who cared and they these were people that cared about it evil and we all thought that the other the other one was was in her life mm-hmm. but it ended up being no one was there right and was that that sense of aloneness that she created that then right. facilitated I don't I don't know you look for answers my mind tries right. to resolve things that right. I, that I'm not going to be able to resolve right so, right anyway, sorry a bit of a bit of a tangent but you yeah. kind of you triggered that memory for yeah. me and just how that sense of helplessness that I felt after and like frustration and anger. And it was a weird, it was a very strange journey to be on. I don't, I don't wish that on anyone. It's it's terrible. Cause when we talk about mental health, it's, it's about conversation. It's about talking about how we're doing period. And we all need to talk about how we're doing. Yes. So, it's so hard for some people, though. It, it is really hard. It is really hard. And it's not... It's hard for me. I shouldn't say some people. It's hard for all of us. <laughs> right, right, right. But that goes back to the feeling of shame, right? Because yes, it's like... you're right. To start to talk about how you're doing, if you feel there's a gap or there's there's a, a weakness or a crack in the floor sort of thing, it it deters us from sharing, right? And it starts to build but up It's the this, shame. You're absolutely right. Like, what what is it that deters us? Is that feeling of... Yeah. Shame is so powerful. So if you, I mean, even when you look at, I don't know, I, I try and, you know, I obviously have a, I guess what I'm trying to say is because I've been through it and I'm starting to be in a place in my recovery where I'm even more didactic and objective talking about the darkest times because I've worked through the emotionality around it right. and I've worked through the trauma. So if we can start to 
to share, like share our strength, right? And it does it doesn't matter where or what your experiences have been, but if we can use what we've overcome to be a strong pillar for someone else, you know, I think that's how we build stronger communities. Back to the sense of community, like yeah. you said. We're all in this together. Totally. We're all having a human experience and, and it's and it's kind of messy. Yeah. It's and it's certainly complicated. Super complicated. Robin, thank you so much for sharing. I was really looking forward to this conversation today because this is a very important topic and I think it's something that is getting talked about but it can always be talked about more. And I think like what we what I really came out of today with is there's so many levels and all the same kind of things apply at different stages. Like the concept of shame, I think we all deal with that. The concept of like, oh, you know, maybe I'm not living up to some imaginary story in my mind or that little thing, that one straw that breaks the camel's back that day and you just can't take it anymore and where that can go. But the sooner you can and be more open with that with people around you the more healthy I think we can all be mentally and physically for sure I totally agree but I, I look forward to continually staying in touch and wish you all the best on your journey and I know you're going back to school to go even deeper into the, the, the path of, of helping others so kudos to you for Good. that thank you thank you so much thank you so much Tyler hello and thank you for listening to today's episode I'm your host Tyler Chisholm I want to let you in on a little secret I absolutely love doing these podcasts. The learning, the people, the curiosity, the insights, the the wow factor of meeting people that I thought I knew and learning their deeper stories really proves the value of what happens when you take the time to be curious and actually care enough to ask. With that, I'm looking for your feedback. I'm looking for your input. I'm looking for what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, where you'd like to see it headed in terms of guests, in terms of questions, a little bit deeper, please feel free to share. We'd love to get your feedback. Visit us on iTunes, it's on Spotify. Give us your review. Give us your five stars if you feel so inclined. But more importantly, give us your feedback. Give us your input on what you want to hear on future shows and we will absolutely incorporate it. Thank you again for listening and have an awesome day.